Hey, welcome to the podcast. This is The Surge Effect, and I'm your host, Mike Surge. This podcast will be talking about anything and everything. Life in general to current events and past events, and all things about this beautiful and wonderful world that we live in. And this podcast, well, it'll probably have an effect on you. Well, welcome to The Surge Effect, everybody. Now, I've mentioned before that I was going to be talking about UFOs or conspiracies at some point, and today I'm going to be talking about UFOs. I've always been intrigued by UFOs all throughout my life. So in this episode, I'll be talking about UFO story that captured the interest of the world. So let me dig into this one. This was called the Roswell Incident. So maybe you're asking yourself, what incident and what is Roswell? Well, it's a good question, so let me start in chronological order of events. So back in July 2nd of 1947 in Roswell, New Mexico, there was a powerful storm, lightning, thunder rolling across the skies. So then on July the 3rd, a farmer by the name of Mac Brazel, he came across debris that was scattered over several football fields in the area in a place called Corona just 65 miles northwest of Roswell, New Mexico. Now picking up the debris that looked metallic and was lightweight and nearly indestructible, he put it in the back of his truck and not telling anyone for a couple of days. July the 4th, 1947, Mac Brazel drives into Corona to a place called Wade's Bar and shows off some of his debris to the locals and once again holds onto it for a few more days. July the 6th, 1947, Mac Brazel drives 65 miles to Roswell to show the authorities because he he thought it was his civic duty to show the authorities what he had had. Now, Sheriff Wilcox was a World War II veteran and was awarded the Bronze Star. This was the person who Mac Brazel took this debris to, Sheriff George Wilcox. So the radio station in Roswell was named KGFL and there was a reporter there by the name of Frank Joyce. He spoke with Mac Brazel about the debris, and Joyce told Brazel to contact the Air Force, and then they could hap- they could handle whatever happened. In 1947, New Mexico was also the home of the 509th Bomber Squadron. This is the same squadron that dropped the nuclear bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The plane that delivered that bomb was the Enola Gay. Now, Sheriff Wilcox contacted the airfield and the officer who responded to the sheriff's call was a fellow by the name of Major Jesse Marcel. He was the Army's intelligence officer. Now, he collects the debris and takes it for study and then runs a few tests. Marcel needs to go out and have a look at where this debris came from, so he contacts Colonel William Blanchard he, to see if he can go out and take a look. Blanchard was actually a backup pilot who was on standby for the Enola Gay that dropped the bomb. So Colonel Blanchard, he orders the material to Washington, D.C. and orders Marcel to go and check out the site where this debris came from. So on July the 6th, Jesse Marcel shows up to meet Mac Brazel to go out to the area where the debris field was found. It was going to get late, so they decided to sleep under the stars. Then early the next morning, they went to the debris field July the 7th, 1947. So, Major Jesse Marcel, the Army Intelligence Officer, he was standing in debris field 
of metal he has never seen before and he could not identify. He also came across some I-beams. They had some kind of hieroglyphics on them. So listen to the intelligence officer, Major Jesse Marcel, in his own words, describe what he saw. Have a listen. They took pictures, of course. They had a whole flock of microphones there. They wanted me to, to they wanted some comments from me, but I wasn't at liberty to do that. So all I could do is keep my mouth shut. And General Ramey is the one who discussed or uh, told the, the, the newspapers, I mean the newsmen, what it was and to forget about it. It was nothing more than a weather observation balloon. Of course, which we, we both knew differently. At Roswell, perhaps around 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, you can see it's flat. It is very difficult. In fact, uh, with just verbal directions, we never would have found it. The following morning we went out to the site where the crash was and uh, what I saw I couldn't believe there was so much of it. It was scattered over such a vast area. So we proceeded to pick up as much of the debris as we could loaded in the wagon. We filled that up. It took us a good part of the day to do that because uh, there's such small fragments that we had to do a lot of picking. We found a piece of metal uh, about about a foot and a half to two feet wide and about, about two or three feet long. Felt like you had nothing in your hands. It wasn't any thicker than the foil out of a pack of cigarettes. But the, the thing about it that got me is that you couldn't even bend it, you couldn't bend it. Even with a sledgehammer, it would bounce off of it. So I knew that I had never seen anything like that before. And as of, as of now, I don't know what it was. Because I was, being an intelligence officer, I was familiar with just about every, all materials used in aircraft and in our air travel. This is nothing like that. It could not be. It could not have been. Another person that was there was Louis Rickett Master, Master Sergeant. He was also there with Jesse and testified about the same information uh, about the debris. And Louis Rickett returned to the Brazel Ranch with Cabot. Right out there, they had some that point there's a military police there and they had a number of them scattered all around and we it looked like to me that there's something that they said that had landed and there was a little pipe with things lying all around and asked Cabot I said what's going on he said well that's what we're this is what the guy said something landed here it is but he saw it when he came out here so they had air police scattered all the way around the perimeter and the whole thing was down below the, the level of the rise and it was just like a kind of depression through the it was a natural depression it wasn't a, that thing didn't cause it did cause a little bit but the material that we saw it just looked like it, it had, whatever it caused it it was just like whatever there it was just uh, vaporized it was nothing jagged, it wasn't cut, it just like it was a big piece and it was just some minor pieces. But some of them were curved, some of them were flat. They, uh, I know that I walked around to the other side over the distance and up to where these airplanes, where the 
at that time it was the military police and the provost marshal's office. And they were, had kind of a semi-dried out there allowing nobody to enter out. And they gathered up that stuff as far as I can remember. And I know that just as, it wasn't pliable, it was just as hard as it could be and just as light as better. And uh, it was uh, enough there that they put some in a, uh, I don't know what kind of, some kind of a weapons carrier, I think they called it, or a truck that the military had. And they put it in there and the major took it with him. I know that we, I can recall that, I think that we had some, and that we had to box it up. It wasn't a big pack at all. But I know that a plane came in, and I think I knew the pilot, he looked at me, and I knew him, and he knew me, but he just shook his head as though he didn't want me to. Recognize. recognize him. So he just wanted to know something about a package, and at this time, Kevin was running the whole thing, and uh, they left. I heard various other sources that I'm not sure about, but I do know that later on, uh, I asked Joe Work, who was head of the 700 CIC, and uh, whatever happened to all that metal, he said, that person wouldn't ask me that. He said, and July the 7th, 1947, Jesse says he believed it to be some kind of mid-air explosion or some sort that spread the debris all over this field. He didn't know at the time, but this was only one of two crash sites. And on July 7th, 1947, in the Capitan Mountains, 25 miles west of Roswell, a young boy by the name of Gerald Anderson and his family came across crash site 2, where they had... Uh, seen a large silver disc-shaped object and four alien bodies. Listen to Gerald describe the aliens. Have a listen. What, was going on? Like, what did it look like a little bit more? These creatures, all of them were all about four foot tall, four, four and a half feet tall. They had very large heads that were shaped larger on the top and they kind of tapered down. Not to a real sharp point, but just tapered down to where they were thin. And they had very large, very large oval shaped or almond shaped, I guess you could say, black eyes that had, they were so shiny, they had almost a bluish tint to them when the light reflected off of them. Their skin coloration, uh, I think the best way I could describe that is kind of a bluish tinted milky white. Uh, it was, uh, it, it looked like someone in shock. And the ones that were laying on the ground were really, really looked more that way, more blue. Uh, like a, like, uh, How about ears, nose, mouth? No, there was, there was no visible ears on the, the creatures, except like if you was just to cover your ear like this, to where there was just a riser and then a hole without, uh, you know, your earlobe and, mm -hmm. and the rest of the ear there. How about nose? Um, it was, uh, the nose was very, very small almost imperceptible, uh, just like two holes straight in. And the lips were just a straight line. 
was like a cut, and I, you couldn't see any visible lips like we have. It was just a slit, and what hair never color? made a sound. Pardon? What hair color? There was, there was no hair. They were okay. completely bald. And no sounds? I never heard a sound of one, not out of any of the creatures, including did, the one that was... Did you see fingers? Uh, yeah, they had, um, they had fingers like this. They didn't have a little finger. They just had the thumb and three extra digits, except the center digit was longer, and the other two were about the same size. They were very long and slender. It looked very delicate, and I've made the statement before, and I'll make it again. I think it would have made an excellent violinist because of the, 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 the structure of their hands. Um, they were wearing one-piece suits. All of them were dressed exactly the same, and it was sort of a, a real shiny, silverish-gray color. Um, no zippers, buttons? No, I saw no zippers, no buttons. Insignia? Um, no, no insignias. The only thing that was different, you know, they all had this, but the only thing that was different from the, the silvery gray thing suit was that down like the seam on the, like it was a seam on the shoulder and around the collar it was trimmed in what appeared to be maroon, like cording. Uh, then the suits were continuous with their footgear. You could see right about this area down, it seemed to be less pliable than it was up here, like this was a stiffer area, like they were boots or shoes or something. But they were all dressed exactly the same. Now, Grady Barney Barnett was another witness of this same event, who was out doing soil samples with the United States Soil Conservation. That day, he saw not only the craft, but the bodies as well, collaborating evidence of the same thing. July the 7th, Back at the crash site one, Major Marcel and his team picked up as much of this debris as they could, but didn't know about crash site two at this time, which is the actual crash site that was 40 miles away. This crash site was, was most likely the, deb the debris from the disc at crash site two. July the 8th, the same day Sheriff Wilcox gets an anonymous phone call from someone saying there is a crashed flying saucer. Now, Sheriff Wilcox called his fireman friend, Dan Dwyer, to go out and look at crash site. After he hung up the phone, the military called the sheriff and said they know about the crash site. And by the way, Dwyer was already there when the military showed up and locked everything down. The military also moved George Anderson, his dad, and uncle away from the scene and threatened them all not to speak of what had happened there. The military gathered everything up and then they moved it to Roswell Airfield. The fireman, Dan Dwyer, told his daughter what he saw. He saw four little bearing, be beings with four fingers on each hand. Also, two government agents showed up at the Roswell Airfield. They seemed to take control of what was going on with all the crash debris. Some people there mentioned that these government men were like what was known today as the men in black. Sergeant Robert Smith was a soldier in the airbase. He also knew of the one government official and said that they are on the orders of President Truman to be there. And on uh, January, July the 8th, rancher Mac Brazel is sitting down with the radio station owner and tells a story at the time, not knowing the military is looking for him. Still on January the 8th, Jesse Marcel headed back to the base with the debris that he would stop off and show his son Jesse, Marcel Jr., just before returning everything to the base. Jesse Jr., when he was an older man, told the story of the debris 
the exact way his dad did. Listen to Jesse Marcel Jr.'s words. My story for the Roswell part began in the wee hours in the morning of July 1947, when I was awakened by my dad who was returning from an assignment to collect debris of unknown origin from a ranch out of Roswell. The sheriff in Chavez County contacted uh, Colonel Blanchard, who was the commander of the Air Force Base in Roswell. Now, Colonel Blanchard uh, knew my dad was the intelligence officer, so he dispatched my dad and a CIC agent, uh, Sheridan Cavett, to investigate what this was. Our house happened to be on the way to the base, and this is in the wee hours of the morning, so my dad, knowing that he had seen something very special, uh, wanted my mother and myself to look at this also because uh, as he said you'll never see this again uh, so what he did he stopped off at the house awakened my mother and myself and uh, again the wee hours in the morning is summertime I've been playing all day with my bicycles and things like that uh, I was 11 years old at the time however and uh, he brought us into the kitchen and I saw a smattering of this uh, strange debris on the kitchen floor that he had pre-positioned. Uh, he said, look at this. I think this is what you call a flying saucer or remains thereof. The debris itself consisted of three components, three types. Uh, there was a, a foil, a, a very tough metallic foil of some nature that I can't really describe. If you fold it over, it'd unfold and assume its original form. Uh, in addition, there was uh, black plastic debris, like a broken phonograph record. But the strangest thing I saw was, uh, as being passed around right now, was that this is a replica of one of the I-beams, or the beams I saw in the wreckage. Uh, in that, you'll note there's some symbols written along the inside surface of this, and uh, they're a purplish, violet hue, semi-reflective of light. My dad uh, uh, drove the debris into the base that night, I think it was that night or maybe early next morning, where he was uh, assigned by Dr. Or Colonel Blanchard to uh, fly the material to General Ramey's office in Fort Worth. This was flown in the belly of a B-29 under armed guard. That's where the cover began, at General Ramey's office. So uh, when my dad got home, he sat my mother and myself down and said in no uncertain terms, you will never talk about this, this is a non-event. Now, Jesse Marcel heads to base with the debris to show Colonel Blanchard by the time the other debris from crash site two was there as well. Blanchard wanted to put out a press release and told his guy, Walter Hott, he was a public information officer, to take down a memo. Now, this memo was for a press release. It was, it was going to say they had a flying saucer and where it crashed. This is to go out in the wire at that time and the world will know about this as soon as it is released. This is Hot's own words. Have a listen to this. Call from Colonel Blanchard. Got the telephone call from Colonel Blanchard, and in essence, he told me that uh, we had him, he had in his possession a flying saucer or parts thereof. Gave me a little bit of idea where it came from, and <clears throat> ranch north west of Roswell, then stated that uh, Major Marcel, Jesse Marcel, who was our base intelligence officer, was going to fly it to Fort Worth to turn it over to General Roger Ramey, who was commander 
commanding general of the 8th Air Force at that time in Fort Worth. And what did Colonel Blanchard want you to do? He told me to prepare a release uh, with basically the information that he gave me over the phone when it was done to take it into community and deliver it, hand deliver it to the four uh, news media we had in Roswell at that Blanchard uh, wants to get his name in history for being the first to get this incredible story out. The people at HQ and in Washington do not want to get out to the world. Hot left the office with press release and barely got off the base after almost being stopped at the gate by the guards. Hot distributed the memo to two radio stations and two newspapers in Roswell. On July the 8th, 1947, the radio station hit the airways with the information and newspapers released the story and everything went global. The United States government is furious about what has happened and orders from President Truman to put a lid on this stuff immediately. Still on July the 8th, Mac Brazel is staying in a radio station, KGFL owner's home. The military knows he's there and they go and grab him and detain him by taking him into custody. Now another player in this story is a man by the name of Glenn Dennis. He's a local mortician. He gets a call from the base about small caskets for children because there's, there's been an accident. These are Glenn Dennis's own words. Have a listen. I'm involved in this was started out in the after early afternoon around probably 1.30 in the afternoon. And I received a telephone call from the mortuary officer out at the Walker Air Force Base, Army Airfield Base. And uh, he was requiring, inquiring about what would be the smallest possible casket that we could get that would be hermetically sealed. And uh, at that time, I know that we had used like the fourth feet and caskets, uh, we had used those before, but I thought they also made them in a three six. So, uh, but I, he wanted to know if we had any in stock, and I said, no, but I, if I can make a call to Amarillo, I can have them in, you know, by seven o'clock the next morning on the truck. So he said, I'll get back to you. And uh, that was the first contact that I had with the base. July 8, 1947, UFO debris was held in Hangar 84. One of the soldiers guarded by Private Elazar Benavides. Supposedly, he said he saw aliens on the floor on medical stretchers. On July 8, 1947, Captain Oliver Wendell Pappy Henderson, he flew the wreckage and the bodies he picked up in Hangar 84 and flew them to Wright-Patterson's Air Force Base in Hawaii or in Ohio, sorry, in Dayton, Ohio. Henderson tells his wife <clears throat> and daughter years later when he sees the story in a magazine at a grocery store. Here is what she said years later. Have a listen to her statement. Time were those crashes of the UFOs in the desert or out of town of Rockwell. And uh, he never said a thing about them because... Uh, he, he had a top secret clearance, uh, 
have anything having to do with dropping atomic bombs. You had to have the, the highest uh, clearance. So he uh, witnessed this crash and the little people who were there. I don't know just where he saw them. I never did pin him down. I, I don't know why I didn't. It was so shocking to me that something like this was real that uh, I never did. How did he happen to tell you that he'd been involved with seeing the little bodies of the, the crash flying saucer? We were at the grocery store and uh, we were going to check out our groceries and um, there were newspapers at the stands as there always are and here were these news, what this newspaper and he said well I guess now that uh, they're putting in the paper I can tell you about this. I wanted to tell you for years he said, I want you to read this article because it's a true story. And I not only know that it's true, but I'm the pilot who flew the wreckage of the UFO to Dayton, Ohio. You mentioned that earlier that he had seen the bodies and one of them was damaged in some way. I think he told me that they uh, were small, they had large heads for their size and that the uh, material that their suits were made of was different to anything, you know, with a strange kind of material. What I remember him telling me was that they were small people. Um, I don't remember three feet high, but certainly shorter than we were, small people, uh, pale, uh, slightly slanted eyes, large, you know, sort of larger heads, and um, humanoid looking, human-esque looking, but not like us, different from us. And uh, he said they were dead and that um, he had seen them and that he had flown the wreckage of the spine. July the 8th, 1947, Fort Worth Airfield, Army Airfield in Texas. Jesse Marcel meets General Roger Ramey, and Jesse shows General Ramey parts of the debris picked up at the crash site one. During the briefing, Jesse senses that there's something not quite right. Jesse believes he has walked into some kind of a trap. The general basically knows he has to shut this thing down. The general tells Marcel there's going to be a press conference to let the world know what they have. On July the 8th, at 7.45 p.m., their press conference was held and Marcel is given specific instructions to keep his mouth shut and that he, the general, has it from now on. Just before they walked out into a sea of reporters, what is laid out on the floor is what a child would recognize as a weather balloon. Suddenly, at that moment, I am sure Marcel realized what, was just, what has just happened. Ramey is flipping the script, and Marcel made a mistake and said a weather balloon was a flying saucer. Major Jesse Marcel, a respected intelligence officer, was their patsy. General Ramey summoned Irving Newton and asked him what it was on the floor with the reporters all around. Irving, Irving Newton, he was a weather duty officer, verifies that what Marcel was holding on to was in fact a weather balloon. This whole scam was a cover-up for the Roswell incident by General Ramey and of course a cover-up. Listen to Thomas DeBoss. He was in the picture with General Ramey. 
Thomas, he retired as a Brigadier General. Listen to his words. Absolutely none. We knew that it was a cover story, and, and it, whose idea it was, I, I haven't the faintest idea, but we used that in order to uh, persuade the curiosity of the press, because this had gotten out in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, Dallas News, and the UPI, and well, the three press three. release from Roswell, Blanchard's press release. Yeah, well, yeah, there are all these pictures from Roswell. You see, all this created a lot of hubbub, and and Eighth Air Force headquarters had to be the hub. The guys that they're going to going to ask the president, somebody along the line is going to say, Who, who's running this show? And it comes up to the 8th Air Force, Rainey and, and or his chief of staff. Somebody in there has got to know something about it. Hidden in plain sight, the memo that General Ramey is holding while trying to create this cover story in the famous picture, of course. He had no idea that years later the technology would be able to read the memo in his hand. And this is what it read. And the victims of the wreck in the disc they will ship. July the 10th, 1947. Since Sheriff Wilcox is one of the most reliable witnesses because he saw what was at the site, saw the debris, and knows how much the military needs to control him, Wilcox's wife tells their granddaughter, Barbara Duggar, what the military told him on that day. Not to say anything to anyone about it. He knows, or they will not only get him, but his family. Listen to his granddaughter from that interview. Sheriff in, uh, in Roswell, New Mexico at the time of the Roswell incident. All right. And you say you lived with your grandmother? Yes, I lived with her. Um, well, I lived with her one whole year, and I taught at the New Mexico Military Institute, and then I lived with her three years, and then off and on. She helped finance me and support me and go to college. She helped me go to college. Did she ever discuss the uh, events at Roswell with you? One evening we were watching TV and it was uh, on TV there was something about space. And my grandmother looked over at me and she said, Barbara, do you believe in anything, you know, outside of the earth? And I said, you know I do. And she said, well, I have something that I would really like to tell you, but I don't want you to ever discuss this or tell anyone because I've never told anybody. She just wrote an article one time just and put flying saucer on it and that's all she had ever written down on a piece of paper. And I said, fine, what do we, what do you need to tell me? And she, you know, I, I thought it was going to be something completely different than what she told me. And she said, uh, in the 40s, there was a spacecraft, a flying saucer is what Big Mom called it, uh, crashed outside of Roswell. I said, how do you know about it, Big Mom? And she said, your grandfather, George, was as a sheriff at the time. And I said, well, I have any idea. I said, what more about it? And it, she was very hesitant to talk about it, but you knew that within her, there was something that she really needed to tell me. She sat there for quite a while, and then she looked at me, and she said, I'm just going to tell you. And she said, but don't tell anybody. And I said, who would I tell anyway? I don't know anybody to tell. And she said, the reason why I'm telling you this is because when the incident happened, the military police came to the courthouse, to the jailhouse, 
and told George and I that if we ever told anything about this incident, talked about it in any way, that not only we would be killed, but the family, that they would, cut, they would get the rest of the family. She was there and witnessed the police, the yes, military she come was, in? Yes. So July 10th, 1947, Mac Brazel was in, uh, has been in the military jail for three days on the base. They want him to go, him not to talk about what he has seen. Everyone and anyone who had any information has to be dealt with. The radio station can't broadcast that interview with Mac Brazel. Either or the world will know the truth. The radio, KGFL, station received a call from Washington where they were threatened saying that their broadcasting license will be taken away if anyone is broadcast, if anything is broadcast. The government is trying, tying up loose ends. So that day, Mac Brazel's interview recording has never been surfaced or been found. The military basically beat Mac Brazel down mentally so much that after three days of jail time, they escorted him back to the radio station where he gave another statement. And that statement went along with the military narrative of the weather balloon story. July the 11th, 1947, Billy Brazel, Mac Brazel's son, was out on the Foster Ranch. That was the crash site one. Billy started to find small pieces of debris that were left. He placed them in a cigar box and claimed that he was being watched. Billy promised not to talk about it until his father passed away and supposedly the military were watching him and they took the remainder of the debris from the cigar, bo cigar box the military once again tying up loose ends listen to Billy Brazel's own words I believe that it was a weather balloon he said Bill he said it was not a weather balloon he said I don't know what it was but he said it was something altogether different and much bigger. Brazel adds that he picked up some of the debris that the military left behind. And I was talking about it. I went into Corona and I was sitting there in a beer joint and I up to these, of course, my friends is asking me if I'd found any more or anything like this. And I said, well, I picked up a few scraps, uh, about a cigar box full, and uh, Somebody, I don't know, must have informed the Air Force because first thing I know, I have visitors. And they say they'd like to have this material. And they didn't tell me they'd confiscate it. They just said, well, like we're going to have it one way or the other, you know. In 1950, 1995, the military has a press conference and tells the world what really happened in Roswell was Project Mogul, a high-altitude weather balloon with mannequin dummies attached to it. Unfortunately, this was also proven to be yet another cover story. What is the government trying to hide? Always a great question to ask. But right after Roswell, just a few weeks after, the CIA was put in place by President Harry Truman to watch and control what is happening and going on in the United States and basically watch the American people. Also, President Truman creates a group called the Majestic 12. Majestic 12 consisted of six military men and six scientists to look into UFO sightings and cases. 
The Roswell incident will go down in history as one of the most well-known, intriguing UFO stories of all time. The Roswell incident has far too many questions and not enough answers. I hope you have all learned something about what I've laid out for you today about the Roswell incident because I've had a blast putting everything together for you. That's all I have today for the UFO incident, the Roswell incident, 1947. Um, I always remember that I'm on Rumble, and I'm on Twitter, and of course on YouTube. Please don't forget to subscribe and like my channel. It helps out with the algorithms. And if you'd like to drop me a line, please leave comments below as well about this video. And if you'd like to drop me an email and... Uh, I can try to cover some more stuff in the future. You can drop it off at the podcast at the surge effect.ca. Okay, that's great. Uh, thanks everyone for watching. And uh, until next time, cheers. This episode sponsored by He Shirts, She Shirts. Go to www.heshirtsshirts.ca. Just type in the letters TSA, the surge effect. When you check out, Type in TSA for your coupon and receive 10% off your next purchase. Thanks for listening to today's podcast, everybody.